My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you through Jesus Christ, the righteous advocate. And we give you thanks for hearing us, for receiving us in prayer, for you have received us in the person of your Son. Now, Lord, shape us by your word. Convict us by your Holy Spirit. Encourage us by your Holy Spirit as well, for we are your servants, and we long to bear your name honorably. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, and amen. Amen. You may be seated. A number of years ago, I heard one wag make this comment. In the beginning, God created mankind, and ever since, mankind has returned the favor. In the beginning, God made man in his image, and ever since, mankind has returned the favor of creating God in their image. This especially seems to be the case when it comes to sin and how we deal with sin as if the Lord deals with sin in the way that we deal with sin. Supposedly, we are the standard, and God is to follow our lead. We live in a time where there seems to be a flurry of all kinds of new unpardonable sins, sins which are unforgivable, usually defined or described by the person sinned against. How dare you? Say that, do that, think that way. How dare you? For this whole new raft of unforgivable sins, the way we deal with sin, there seems to be no hope, no restoration, no remedy Such people are written off. They are rejected. And I've seen this happen. I'm so thankful that our God has not treated us in this way. So how has the Lord treated us? How has the Lord dealt with our sins? Our Lord has convicted us of our sins. And the Lord has also provided for us because of our sins. 1 John 2, 1, our passage opens today with pastoral and fatherly affection. My little children. This is not a put down. This shows that the congregation and John the writer, that they are part of the same family, that they are in this together. And in this, both the scent and the spirit of 1 John wafts before us. The letter of 1 John is a letter of pastoral affection, dealing with congregational cares and concerns. My little children, I am writing to you so that you may not sin, sin, 
Yes. I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. But tragically, we'll hear that and we'll say, oh yes, so many of those other people do sin all the time. Tragically, we consider the sins of others far more than we consider our own sins. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The affectionate father aims to help, not harm. The affectionate father gives guidance and hope and does not crush his children under a load of hopelessness and condemnation. So John says, I am writing these things to you. These things? What things? Well, the things that he had just written about that we considered a few weeks ago in 1 John chapter 1. It's the same subject, the subject of sin, our sin, your sin. It's the same subject regardless of the chapter division. So here's a little bit of review. If you were to peek back or think back to what we call verse 6, John is saying instead of pretending that you have a healthy relationship with God, all the while you've still not changed anything, and you still walk in the darkness, verse 6, verse 7 says, go to the light, start walking in the light of exposure, and you will be constantly cleansed from sin. That's what he's talking about. And then in verse 8, instead of deceiving yourselves about your sin and avoiding the truth, if we say we have no sin, he says, go ahead, verse 9, confess your sins and our faithful and righteous God will forgive you of your sins, all your sins, and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then, verse 10, You may admit that sin is out there. You may even admit that other people sin. But then you continue to pretend that you are all shiny and spotless and that you have not contributed your own mess to the mix. Your sin is a reality. That's what John is saying. Our sin is a reality. We are cornered. Stop pretending, stop lying. Verse 6 says, stop living in the lie. Verse 8 says, stop deceiving yourself. Verse 10 says, stop calling God a liar. I'm not going to call for testimonies, but you'll think about it right now. Sin breaks fellowship. Your sin breaks fellowship. If your sin breaks fellowship with others, what does it do with God? And what does our God do about it? So John has written these things, my children, in order to deal with sin, yours and mine, so that we might not sin. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart pure and I am clean from my sin? Who can say, who can do that on his or her own? Can you? Romans 3.10. There is none righteous, no, not one. And why did Paul add that? Because he's going to say, there's none righteous, no, not one. And then someone from the side wing will say, except me. He says, no, not even one. Don't even go there. We sin. Fellowship is broken. You sin. You've confessed your sins. You've confessed your guilt. 
we are guilty. We are undone and we of ourselves cannot fix it. Does this then mean that we are crushed, condemned, cast out? John continues, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, the latter part of verse 1 of chapter 2, I'd like to point out a number of things. But we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So here we go. The, 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 the second half of verse 1. But if anyone does sin, and you will, but if anyone does sin, and we will, what now? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. This word advocate, it's a wonderful word. In Greek, it is the word parakletos, and some of you perhaps have heard the word paraclete. That's the word. We have a paraclete with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. In this passage, Jesus is called the paraclete, the advocate. In this context, this word paraclete is used to refer to a defense attorney, someone who speaks on our behalf. John uses this word paraclete. He used it in his gospel in John 14, 15, and 16. He keeps using the word parakletos. And there it refers to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give my spirit to the disciples. I'm going to give the Holy Spirit from the Father to those who follow Jesus. So in John's gospel, the paraclete, comforter, helper, same word, is used of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, as the paraclete, is God's presence with us. In John's letter here, Jesus, as the paraclete, he is the paraclete for us in front of the Father. So the Holy Spirit is the paraclete with us. Jesus is the paraclete for us. John also says in this, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a paraclete, a defense attorney, with the Father, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Love this word with, and I'm going to take you into the Greek kitchen for just a moment. It's a little preposition, pros, and it means before, with, toward, in front of, or in the face of. There's a Greek word, the Greek word for face is prosopon. Here's a little preposition, prosopon, the Greek word is face, face. The preposition pros means toward or in front of or in the face of. We have an advocate in front of the Father, in the face of the Father, right before the Father. And this is important. If we sin, and we will, Jesus is our advocate, our defender, our defense attorney, our paraclete, the one who is right before the face of the Father. Now, why is this so important? One final note about how this all ties together with the advocate, the paraclete, and all of this. This is important because over the ages, the saints have had an accuser in the face of the Father. Over the ages, the saints have had an accuser, a prosecuting 
attorney right in front of the Father. And our ancient foe has a history of going on and on about our guilt and about the Lord's selection of those filthy ones. I'd like to remind you of two passages, and then I'd like you to turn to another passage. The two passages I'm going to remind you of are right at the beginning of the book of Job. The book of Job. I'm just going to remind you of these. In Job chapter 1, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. That's the context. And the Satan, ha-satan, the Satan, the accuser, also came among them. And we ask, what in the world is the Satan doing there? It's a good question. It goes on, Job chapter 1. The Satan, ha-satan, the accuser, answered the Lord and said, Job, does Job fear God for nothing, for no reason? Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. That's the accusation. That's what the Hasatan does. Well, the ink isn't even dry on Job 1. The breath hasn't even left the room on Job 1. And then you turn to Job chapter 2, and we see a similar scene, beginning with the word again. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Hasatan, the Satan, the accuser, also came among them to present himself before the Lord. So you get this idea of the before, the before, right in front of. Passage goes on. Then the Satan, the accuser, answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he'll give in exchange for his life. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Hmm. But the passage I'd like you to turn to is right, bless you, is right at the end of the Older Testament. Not Malachi, but right before Malachi, the second to the last book of the Older Testament is Zechariah. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 3. And I'd like you to follow along with me in this passage. Zechariah chapter 3. I believe this is the fourth vision that Zechariah has been given. The children of Israel are in exile, so there's a break in fellowship out there. And within that break of fellowship, the accusations continue, particularly against the religious leaders. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. There's a high priest at this time in this vision named Yeshua. Joshua. Follow along in verse 1. Then he showed me Yeshua, or Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and, yes, you know it, the Satan, Hasatan, the accuser, standing at his right hand to accuse him. So that's what the accuser does. The accuser accuses. The adversary is against. And the, the Hebrew word here is, so the Satan, the accuser, is there doing what? Accusing him. It's Satanizing him. The Satan is standing there Satanizing the high priest. Verse 2, And the Lord said to the Satan, the accuser, The Lord rebuke you, O the Satan, the accuser. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand 
a burning stick, an ember, a burning stick plucked from the fire. Now Yeshua, Joshua, was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments, pure clothing. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So he's a high priest. He's wearing the priestly garments. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Accusation, accusation, accusation. It's a courtroom scene. There's an accuser. Where's the advocate? Well, the angel of the Lord gives the message from the Lord. Changes clothes. I've taken away your iniquity. In both Job and Zechariah, the saints over the ages have had an accuser right in front of the Father. And the accusation is all about your sin and your unworthiness or their sin and their unworthiness and you can't be in fellowship with them. But John says that's not all. My little children, even though there has been an adversary, an accuser, we also have an advocate in front of the Father, in the face of the Father, one who speaks on our behalf, dealing with our sin, dealing with our unworthiness so as to preserve fellowship. This is the new age. I love the way that Dr. Peter Lightheart wrote about this. When he said, the coming of the new covenant does not mean that God shuts down the courtroom. It means he adds an officer to the court. Book of Revelation, Revelation 12, 10, in that context, speaks of the dragon of old, our ancient foe, who is an accuser of the brothers and sisters. The accuser. Simon Peter, in his first letter, had this to say, Be sober-minded. Don't get groggy. Be watchful. Your adversary, you have an adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's this ongoing action with what's going on. That's what Simon Peter is actually saying. It's an active lion, roaring, prowling, seeking so as to consume. And so while all that's going on, John is here to say, my little children, the work of the advocate is still going on too. By yourselves, you'd despair with the roaring lion. You'd despair not having a word to say in that courtroom. But John is saying, my little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate Oh, by the way, actually it says we are having an advocate. We have an advocate who is always representing us. 
Literally, it could be rendered this way. An advocate we have always. Jesus is not a momentary advocate. This is why Hebrews 7, verse 25 says this. Jesus is able to save completely to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he is always living and always making intercession for them. Jesus as our mediator, as our advocate, is always interceding, praying, representing us before the Father. By the way, why is this important? I'll tell you why. It's because it's something every one of us knows. Because not every accusation is false. Not every accusation is false. Joshua the high priest had filthy garments. Note how that is used. The father of lies will use a little, a little bit of truth and just wrap it in the tortilla of a lie. Look at those filthy garments. He was a mess. Hasatan, the Satan, the accuser would accuse right in front of God. Uh, don't you hate sin? Did not one of your prophets say, I think it was Habakkuk, that your eyes are too pure to look upon evil? Hmm? Look how soiled that person is. That person is filthy. I can smell them from here. You even know what they have done. You know their thoughts. Don't you have wrath against such? Hmm? So the accuser keeps accusing and the advocate keeps answering. The answer is, they are mine. The accuser says, but they are filthy. And the advocate says, but I am righteous. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, my little children. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is the one who stands and speaks for us. And by the way, our righteous advocate represents us in front of the Father. He bears our names. We are known. By the way, there's a beautiful likeness of this in the Older Testament. In Exodus 28, in a passage that too often is just flipped by, there's a description of the priestly garments. What would the high priest wear? Well, a couple of things, a number of things. But the high priest actually wears something called an an ephod. And the ephod is connected with a couple of straps here at the shoulder. And up here at the shoulder are are two stones, one stone on each side, onyx stones. And on those stones are etched the names of the sons of Israel, right there on the shoulders. That's what the high priest wears, but that's not all. The high priest also wears something called a breast piece of judgment. It's right here. And on that breast piece of judgment are 12 stones, four rows of three. 12 stones, and on each of those stones are etched the names of the sons of Israel. Right there in his heart. So that's why when you you read Exodus 28 or you hear this, Exodus 28, 29, So Aaron, the high priest, shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. 
a letter of pastoral affection dealing with congregational cares and concerns. Each one of us has concerns over sin, our own sin. What do we do about it? Are we cast out? We have an advocate with the Father who represents us, who bears our names before the Lord. I died for her. I died for him. I died for them. Case closed. Now, there's much more we could say. So encouraged by Pastor Jeffrey's encouraging sermon last week on our welcome in prayer. I'd like you to be encouraged by this as well. Our welcome through Jesus, our advocate, who always lives to make intercession for us. But I was also encouraged that Pastor Jeffrey a few weeks ago said, you know what, I'm taking a look at this passage in James. I'm going to make, do this verse, but I'll save these other verses for later. So I think I'm going to stop here and maybe save verse 2 for later. But I'd like, I would like to wrap up with just a couple of other comments. And with this we will conclude. First of all, let's consider the sins of others. The sins of others. How do we deal with the sins of others? And how does God deal with the sins of others? How has God dealt with your sins? Or have you recreated the Lord in your own image? Whereas often you are miserly with regard to your forgiveness. You are resistant and you are quick to reject because someone said or did something that you deemed an offense against your most high-ness self. What about the sins of others? Our Lord has said if we confess our sins, He has taught us that He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we want to say, oh, no, 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 the smudge is still there. The garments are still filthy. I can smell them from here. We confess it leads to forgiveness and cleansing before the Lord. But sometimes among us, a confession is made and it results in resentment and greater misery. There have been times that these two friends or this husband and wife, one of them has done something. Sometimes there's an accusation that is leveled. Maybe they've done it, maybe they haven't. Sometimes the husband or the wife will confess a sin And pastorally, we have to get in and remind people of the gospel, remind people of the advocate, Jesus Christ, and what's been done on our behalf. Sadly, too often, a confession of sin from a husband to a wife results in harm instead of health. You told me? That's it. as if I am greater or more holy than God. Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another. It takes work. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. How has God forgiven you? Well, but their offense against me is greater than my offense. Do you really want to go there? So, as we conclude, that's the first point today. I just want us to be thinking about that. 
What about the sins of others? And consider what our Lord has done for our sins. Next, with regard to our own sins. This passage helpfully addresses the two extremes that we often come to when it comes to our own sins. So the first point was about the sins of others. This point is about our own sins. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and you will, we have an advocate with the Father. We have two extremes when it comes to our own sin. We either are too lenient with our sins... Or we are too severe with our own sins. Too lenient with our own sins or too severe with our own sins. Those are the two poles that I have seen over the years. I've experienced it. We may consider our sins to be no big deal. Or our sins to be completely, totally devastating. Jesus Christ answers both. Your sins are not no big deal because Christ died for your sins, for you, and represents you before the Father. So don't be lenient about your sin. If you see a little sin, deal with it. Get rid of it right away now. And furthermore, beware of being too severe on your sins as if you are some kind of Messiah or sacrifice for your own sins. Beware of total devastation for our Lord is the one who represents us before the Father. This is wondrous hope, wondrous joy, and ought to strengthen us in our interactions with one another because this is the way that the Lord has chosen to beautify his bride. Sin, death, will not have, does not have the final word. So, I conclude, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you through Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the one who always lives to make intercession for us. And we praise you for his righteousness and your appointment of him for us. We praise you now for our election, for our calling and that we may be found in Jesus Christ, not having a righteousness of our own, but one that is found in Him. Heavenly Father, encourage us in these ways, and may we not think lightly of sin, and may we not think that sin has the final word. And we pray all of this through Jesus, who Himself is the final word. And amen.